0: Father, we come before you now and we submit ourselves to your word. We um, we are looking in this, this story, it's just simply a story of what happened with a particular family and yet in it are things that are valuable and applicable to us today and so we pray Lord that you would uh, speak through your word, that you would help us to hear what it is that you're saying to us, that you'd be shaping us as individuals, as families, as churches, uh, that at the end of... Our time together this morning, we would be more inclined to commit ourselves fully to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are on uh, the 61st week of our series through Genesis. Some of you are thinking, I know, I know, we've been doing this forever. Well, we're almost done, right? Are you making smart comments down there? Yes, we could hear you. Yeah, it's all right, it was just communing with the God of the universe, it's all right. It's a... The kids are cute, yes they are. <laughs> all right, so last week we saw how at Joseph's urging and Pharaoh's command, the, the sons of Jacob had gone back to the land of Canaan, they'd gotten their wives, their kids, all their stuff, they'd packed it all up and they'd made the, the trip to Egypt, Today, we're going to see how they get settled, how God has worked out beforehand, how they're going to be in one particular place at exactly the right time, because God is the sovereign God over all the universe, and he has a plan for this family, the family of Israel, which would become the nation of Israel, and he's working it out in spite of all the weird things that seem to have happened that would possibly derail that plan, it is all coming together. And we we get to see some of that clearly today. So the, the family has come back to Egypt. Joseph, the beloved son who they thought was dead for some 20 years is actually the governor, the second in charge of Egypt, second most powerful man in the world. He has been used by God to save the lives of millions. God clued him in that there would be seven years of, of great plenty, bumper crops, and then seven years of famine. And he gave Joseph the job through Pharaoh's command that during the seven years of plenty, he's supposed to store up extra grain, and the seven years of famine, he can distribute it. We're going to start seeing how that happens this week. And uh, honestly, it, it sh- the way it happens, it's going to make you a little uncomfortable as red-blooded Americans from Dark County, because it doesn't look like our way of doing society. It's going to make us a little uncomfortable. But for for first, we see that the family has come back together, that God's plan is coming together, and the promises that God made to Abraham, and then repeated to Abraham's son Isaac, then repeated to Isaac's son Jacob, are still valid. They're still happening. They're still coming about. Specifically, the promise that God would build them into a great, humongous nation that couldn't be numbered. And that, that one of their descendants, who we now know as Jesus, would be a blessing to the whole world. Those promises are still coming together. But we ended last week with uh, Joseph giving some specific instructions to his dad on how to talk to Pharaoh. Now, I bet... Jacob appreciated this because Jacob has been, for the most part, just a lowly shepherd guy living a rural blue-collar life most of his life, and now he's going to stand in front of the most powerful man in the whole world. Joseph gives him some clues, helps him figure out what exactly he's going to say. And so last week, near the end of the chapter, we read this. Joseph says this to Jacob. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth and even until now, both we and our fathers. In order that... You may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So we looked at this last week, and we remembered how a few weeks before, when we saw the big banquet where Joseph threw the, the big party for all of his brothers, and he bestowed extra blessing on Benjamin, in that, that narrative that we read, we saw how the Egyptians refused to sit with the Hebrews, or the, the people of Israel, Jacob's family. Because, and it was said in that chapter, that they were an abomination to the Egyptians. And then in this passage last week, we saw how not only is there this, this racist and ethnic thing going on with the Egyptians where they look at the Hebrews and they say, you are not worthy to sit at our table with us and eat a meal with us. There's also this classism going on where the, the Egyptians look at the shepherds and they think, you guys are not worthy to be in our presence. Now, we're not told why the Egyptians think that about shepherds. and They have animals themselves, and yet they despise the shepherds. But Joseph knows this, and he's using this to set up to make sure that Pharaoh keeps his previous promise that the people of Israel will get the land of Goshen, the best of the land of Egypt. He's got special plans and a special love for this family, and he uses the racism or the, the ethnic differences. He uses the classism of Egypt in order to bring about his plan. This is a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible: that those who tend to be small in the world's eyes, those who are forgotten, those who are rejected, those who are, in the eyes of the Egyptians, an abomination turn out to be favored by God. Now, moms and dads, I want you to hear this clearly. It's not just this passage, it's through the whole Bible. God favors the lowly, the rejects, the losers, the unpopular. The world wants to tell you and your kids that what they need is to be on the right team to have the right clothes, to have the, the right music, the right phone, the right social media app, the, the right language, the right attitude. all They need all of that stuff in order to be successful as a young person. And I know that even though you went through it yourself and you can look back on it and say in wisdom that, you know, that, that, that stuff was poison to me as a kid and I fell for it and it crushed my heart, yet there's this, stuff, there's this stuff inside of us that says, I want my kids to have that success, that worldly, that social, that, that kind of success. And I just got to tell you, as a parent, as a veteran in a youth ministry for 20 years, as a, as a pastor, as a student of the Word of God, it's a trap. God favors And gives blessing, particular love and care to the rejects and the losers and the lowly. And when we put on ourselves the pressure to be impressive, to be accepted by the world, to be loved by the world, and when we put that pressure on our kids, it's actually poison. So if your kid's not fitting in, if your kid's being mistreated, being rejected, Let me encourage you to rejoice in that. Yeah, I know it breaks your heart. Maybe there's some tears. But if you look at the whole witness of Scripture, that's a good place to be. I know it doesn't look like it when you look at the system of our world, but the system of the kingdom of God is upside down. We see that taking place in this particular passage right now where Jacob, stinky shepherd, mostly uneducated, backwater kind of guy, stands before the the king of the world, and he's judged as an abomination. But God is using that in order to love and care for Jacob's family. So in 47, this is on page 40 in a pew Bible, We read this, so Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks, their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And I would love to know which five those are, but we're not told. Verse three, Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So they're following Joseph's plan here. They're setting everything up just right. And they refer to themselves in this paragraph, and we'll see it a couple other times in this chapter, as sojourners. Sojourn is a funny word that we don't use much. Basically, it means to to live someplace temporarily. And so the people of Israel have been promised the land of Canaan, which we would now call the land of Israel, but they're temporarily living in Egypt. The people of Israel, multiple times, were removed from the promised land and brought back to the promised land, and removed from the promised land and brought back to the promised land. And it's meant to get us accustomed to the idea that here in the New Testament, we are the church, the chosen people of Israel. We are not living in our homeland. If you are a Christian, you are a sojourner in this world. You don't belong here. You are a servant of the king, a citizen of another kingdom. You are a sojourner. Now, they know that they're sojourners. They call themselves sojourners. What they don't realize is, they're not just there for a few years to say, could we borrow the land of Goshen until the famine is over, and then we'll go back to our promised land. They're going to be there for 430 years. Multiple generations are going to be birthed, raised to adulthood, and die, while they're sojourners in that land. For us in our short national history, it's hard to imagine 430 years of waiting between major events, but the nation of Israel's been around a long time. If we go to verse 5, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So the plan worked, and then the conversation resulted in the surprise at the end where Pharaoh, who has learned to trust Joseph quite literally with his life and his kingdom, says, hey, if you know anybody, kind of glances at the five brothers, who could be trustworthy shepherds, just put them in charge of all my livestock. Now, that's actually going to be a key thing as the rest of the story unfolds in this chapter. That is, once again, God preemptively setting up the nation of Israel to prosper. Verse 7, Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And we say, wait a minute, the translators must have got that backwards. It should be Pharaoh blessing Jacob, right? King of the world, unlimited resources and power and wealth, strength and honor, and probably the best education that anybody in the world could have at that point. He should be the one with his kingly scepter raised, pronouncing some kind of blessing and welcome over Jacob. And yet, somehow, these two men, one strong ruler of the world, the other, old, frail, near the end of his life, like Jacob's already thought he's dead a couple times in life, but he just keeps going. They stand in front of each other, they size each other up, and amazingly, Jacob says to himself, I'm the man here. I'm going to bless Pharaoh. That boldness comes from knowing that he belongs to God. Now, if you belong to Christ, you can have that same kind of boldness in weird situations in this world. You could be in a situation at work where you know, there's competing views and nobody knows exactly what to do and there's a right way and there's a wrong way and you know the right way because you lo- belong to Christ and, and you can boldly say this is the right thing to do because you know that you're a servant of the king and he has communicated to you through your word how you're to live and you can, like Jacob, stand before the powers of this world and assume that authority. So Jacob blesses Pharaoh. I assume that that really knocked Pharaoh off guard, off balance. I imagine him looking at Jacob, and saying, who, "Who are you? Not like a who do you think you are, but just nobody walks in here as a sojourner, as a as a vulnerable." foreigner needing mercy, and then stands boldly and blesses me. Who are you? Just amazing exchange there. And he probably asked, and, and how old are you anyway? Because you look like you're barely old on, right? Verse 8, Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning, so not just in Egypt, but he sees his whole life as a sojourning. He's temporarily here on earth. He says, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Again, there's this eternal kingdom perspective. They don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know anything about the coming heavenly kingdom of God and yet somehow Jacob has this sojourner perspective that you and I desperately need to know because we, we think we belong here and we try to make ourselves as comfortable and as happy and secure and everything as we can here and yet this is not our home and he sees that. But notice what he says. I'm 130 years old. And that's nothing compared to my ancestors. Now, if you're jumping into the series with us here and you're not particularly familiar with Genesis, this could be a real surprise to you because currently the, the, the oldest person alive today is Kane Tanaka, who is 118 years old. She lives in Japan. Okay, 118. Can you imagine? She's born in 1903. So she has. She's old enough that if her memory's good, she remembers both world wars. Isn't that amazing? Like, she, living in Japan, got to see what was basically a medieval society, very simple, become this totalitarian, fascist, off-evil society. She witnessed the bombings, the atomic bombings, of Japan that ended World War II. She witnessed her, her nation in collapse and destruction. She got to see the rebuilding of her nation by the U.S. and the U.S. allies, and it's now a powerhouse of technology and manufacturing throughout the world. She has seen all of that stuff in her 118 years, and yet Joseph, uh, Jacob here says, I'm 130 years old, and it's not that big a deal. How can he say that? Well, you'll remember a timeline that we worked with a bunch of times back in the beginning of Genesis. This is the big picture. I realize you can't see it, so we're going to zoom in to the top part here. This is showing you the people named in the the genealogies of Genesis, how old they were when they first started having kids, that's where the red line ends, and then how long they lived after that. And you'll remember like Methuselah is 969 years old Noah, he was uh, 950 years old when he died. Jacob's grandfather was 175 years old. And we think, how in the world do people live that way? We talked about this actually probably two years ago. So let me just remind you of it. There are basically two reasons why we can say that this is actual, this is truth, this is fact, this is not just some fairy tale. Obviously, nobody today lives anywhere near this long. What's different about back then? Two primary reasons that this makes sense. One, the Bible tells us that we're not simply evolved from other creatures, but that God created the first man and the first woman on purpose, and they would have had no inherited sin, no inherited genetic defects or mutations, perfect genes, now, within the next few generations, those mutations and genetic defects, those would start and they would snowball. And today, you and I have thousands of error messages in our genes. But it didn't start out that way. And that snowball starts rolling slowly, but then it picks up speed. But at the time, especially these, these guys before the flood, it's still rolling slowly. It's, it's almost like they're... like a. a Not a different species, but like a super version of humanity. That's one reason. The second reason has to do with the flood. We are told in Genesis that the climate of the world was different before the flood. That it was this perpetually moist, almost greenhouse. And it it didn't rain, it just moistened itself all the time, right? Right? And then after the flo- you get all the rain and the you know the deeps breaking open you get over a year of the world submerged underwater there's there's all kind you know plate tectonics moving around and volcanoes just all kinds of things happening and what we see is after the line of the flood the ages decrease very quickly we can say well obviously the, the world that we live in became a different place a more hostile place. Became harder to live. And so those ages went down. And so Jacob, who's pretty far removed from that, but you know, he's still got that family memory, he can look back and he can say, Well, my you know, my grandfather made it to 175. And if you go really far back, we're talking multiple hundreds of people. And so my days are not all that impressive, but that's not all that he says. He says, My he says, few and evil have been the days of my life. (laughs) That's kind of a dark statement for Jacob, right? He's got the he's got the all black on and he's got the emo makeup going and these few and dark are the days of my life. What's he talking about? Evil days. Is he talking about his own evil? Because he's had a lot of evil, right? He's he's tricked his brother, he's lied to his dad, he's he's got himself. Four women, two that are considered wives, two that are basically concubines for pleasure and for bearing kids. I mean, this is, a, this is a messed up guy. He's done a lousy job of raising his kids. His kids have caused him all kinds of heartache. He's got murderers. He's got liars. He's got genocidal maniacs as kids. He's got people committing incest within his family. It's a mess. And so there's things that he's done. There's things that have been done to him, the suffering from his kids, His his uncle Laban uses him, cheats him, steals from him, pursues him to try to kill him. this, This has been a tough life for Jacob. It's sad to me that he responds with just this dark statement. Because he's standing in front of the king of the world's superpower, and he could have said, let me tell you about how God has been faithful to me and my family. First of all, here's all the ways that we tried to mess it up, but God was faithful through all of it. And here's what he did, and here's what he did again. And I thought I'd co- totally screwed it up, but God came through and he redeemed it. And he, re- he could have told that kind of story, but instead, this says, few and evil are the days of my life. Now, he doesn't know it, but he's, he's actually got another 17 years to live at this point. So even though he's kind of missed his opportunity here, he does bless Pharaoh. Verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and he went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, which is what it would be called later. Like when Moses is writing this some 400 years later, he looks back and he says, okay, we call it Ramses. They called it Goshen at the time, as Pharaoh had commanded. Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all of his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So God has set them up in the best land in Egypt, given them all the food, all the supplies that they need, given them employment as shepherds of the royal flocks and herds and and all that. But more than all of that, God has placed them in what is an incubator. They go in as 70 they come out as a huge multitude 430 years later, and part of the reason that is possible is because God puts them in that incubator, that perfect land, even in the middle of that famine in order to grow and bless that family. Things in Egypt, though, are going to get really desperate. Here's where it starts to get a little uncomfortable for us. 13. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now this is a raw deal tax-wise. These guys did the work, grew the grain. Joseph, on behalf of Pharaoh, forcefully confiscated a whole bunch of it during those seven years of plenty. And now that they have no food, he is selling back to them what he took from them. Which kind of sounds like our governor's plan to do the whole million dollar lottery thing. I'm going to take your taxes and then I'm going to bribe you to get the shot by giving you a chance to get your money back. Except this is on a much bigger scale, right? Everybody in the land of Egypt, we're actually told in the land of Canaan too, has come and they've, they've spent all that they have to buy food because they can't grow their own, and there's no store to go to. There's no, there's no hidden stockpile somewhere. It's just gone, and so they've come to Egypt where God has used Joseph to make a stockpile to save their lives, but it's going to get worse. Verse 15, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes, for our money is gone? And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all of their livestock that year. So the people have been holding back their livestock, hoping that eventually the famine's going to end before they have to eat their livestock or their livestock starve to death and they will have them as, as a way of restarting their livelihood. But they realize that's just a, a pipe dream. They're desperate, and they're going to they're gonna give all of their livestock, their last hope of starting anew, they're going to give that to Joseph, to Pharaoh, in exchange for food because they are so desperate. How is Pharaoh going to care for all these animals? Jacob's family. So Jacob's family is in that, that lush land, that little pocket, that sanctuary, that incubator, and now they are being enriched. Yeah, they don't own the flocks and herds, but shepherds make more as they have more flocks and herds. The, God is blessing the people of Israel even in this crazy desperate situation, but now it's going to get even worse. Verse 18, And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year, and they said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent, that the herds of our livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. We got nothing. We got land. We got ourselves. That's it. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we, with our land, will be servants to Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land may not be desolate. Basically, so Pharaoh, speaking to Pharaoh through Joseph, we are desperate. We will be your slaves. We will give you our land if you'll just give us food to try to make it through another year. None of us can even imagine being that hungry and that desperate, right? Joseph agrees to this. He takes them as slaves. and We have to wonder, is Joseph right to do this? Joseph is is essentially signing the paperwork to take all of the Egyptians and make them indentured servants, bond servants, slaves to Pharaoh. He's taking all of their land. He's supposed to be our hero, right? This sounds like those those dreaded systems that we've heard so much about these last year and a half or so, the socialism, the communism. Is, Is the Bible saying this is a good thing? God put Joseph there. He put him in this position. He orchestrated all these things. Is this how God wants society to function? Yet we will see, primarily through the the attitudes of the people, that this is not what we think of as socialism and communism. In the last hundred years, every socialist communist state has come to power through violence, through the murdering of people. They have retained their, violent, their their status through that same kind of violence. They've sucked the life out of people. There, there is no socialist or communist country in the world that has, has built a thriving, successful, and good society. It's all been either built up in an evil way or it's been torn down at the hands of socialism and communism. Is that what is happening here? Let's look at these next few verses. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So good deal for the priests there. 23, then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you you shall sow the land, and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. So this is the end of the seven years of famine. Joseph knows it's the end because God has told him it's going to be seven years long, so he says, here, um, I... I have bought you for Pharaoh. You belong to him, but I'm going to give you seed now. You're going to go work. You're going to plant, and you're going to harvest. And when you harvest, you're going to pay 20% in taxes, and you're going to keep 80%. So he collected food from them. He sold it all back to them. He took everything that they had. Then he gave them seed. They work, and they continue to pay back to Pharaoh. And they're not free and they don't own their land. But notice, this is very different. There's actually a there's actually a capitalist core to this. If you're if you got a set deal where like it's twenty percent, you get to keep eighty percent then the harder and smarter you work, the more that you make, right? This is not like communism where it says, look, it doesn't matter if you're a great worker or a lousy worker, everybody's going to be the same, I mean, except for the ruling class, but everybody else is going to be the same miserable lot. That is not what's happening here. Joseph has actually set up a system where those who are willing to work hard and work smart, they can start getting ahead again. look how they respond. They're grateful. They are thankful. 25. They said, you have saved our lives. So they're, they're under no like, confusion. They recognize if this wasn't the deal, they would be dead. You, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day, meaning Moses 400 some years later writing it, he says, is still enacted that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. How does Moses know that this is the case? Well, Moses was raised as a prince of Egypt before he ran for his life to Midian and then was called by God to go back and get the Israelites and take him out. Moses was the benefit, benefactor of that 20% tax that was still going. He didn't have to work. It was all given to him. He knows firsthand that this thing is still going. They go on, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. So the people of Israel are now enslaved, but they are thankful They are relieved because they get to live and not die, and they get to start over, and they get to make their own living again and start rebuilding. They're excited about that. And then we zoom back over to Israel. They're settled in the land in Goshen, and it says that they gained possessions in it. They were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. So where all the Egyptians have gone bankrupt and are now slaves, the people of Israel are prospering, flourishing, growing in the land of Goshen. This is exactly the plan from the beginning. God has been working for years, decades, generations, making sure that his people, 70 at this point, going to grow into a giant nation, are in the incubator at just the right time to grow and become what he has called them to be. Now yeah. if you 've been tracking along with us in genesis you should you should hear some echoes of previous points of Genesis in here, specifically when it says that they were fruitful and they multiplied greatly. Hopefully, your mind's zooming back to Genesis one twenty seven where the first man and the first woman are created directly by God and they 're given a commission this says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Adam and Eve are created, two distinct genders marked by their biological sex. And they're told their first job is to enjoy each other and have a lot of babies. That's a good idea. God sets them free. Enjoy. Be fruitful. Multiply, fill the earth. And then decades, generations, hundreds of years later, after the flood, there are eight people left, they've come off the boat, the animals are jumping for joy because they're finally outside, and God has a conversation with Noah and his family, and he says this in Genesis 9-1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, the commission of humanity, especially early on, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And now, 700 years after that promise, the people of Israel are in Goshen, in the middle of a famine, and they're not told to be fruitful and multiply, we are told that they were fruitful and multiply. In the middle of the famine, they're fulfilling the commission given to Adam and Eve and to Noah. I love how Moses, writing this, keeps bringing this circle back, this one coherent history story that just tells over and over again how God is at work and is doing things on purpose. Verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, meaning Jacob, it's interesting, though, that he's called Israel here, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. We've seen this method in the past in Genesis for taking an oath. Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt. bury me in the burying, in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. He said, Swear to me. He swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon The head of his bed. Now he's not dead yet, but he's almost dead. Next two chapters he's got some serious business to do with his family. But in this dramatic way, the chapter comes to an end. Jacob says, Joseph, swear to me, you will not bury me in Egypt. You'll take me back to the land of Canaan and bury me with my fathers. Why? Why does he care? Is it because his beloved wife Rachel is back there? that she's buried in Canaan, well, he's not actually going to be buried in the same place that she was buried. He's, he's going to be buried with Abraham and Isaac and Leah, but Rachel's got her own tomb because they were mid-trip when she died. Is it just this, this you know, the family plot that's where my, my body belongs? No, it's more than that. When Jacob says, promise me you'll take me back, It is a statement of faith. It's a statement of his belief in the promises of God. God said, I'm going to take you down to Egypt. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I've promised you and your descendants this land. Jacob says, I'm going to live by that promise. I want to be buried in that land that God has given. me." Even as kind of his last dying wish, he's, he's proclaiming that through all of his ups and downs, his unfaithfulness and his faithfulness, he believes that God is faithful through all of it, and yet we have to wonder: Why do we even care where we die or where we're buried? Right? Jen had a great uncle, Paul, lived in Atlanta most of his years, and uh, he died this this winter. And uh, he's he's been a independent. He's been a bachelor his whole life. Uh, he was ninety what when he died? Ninety five when he died, and. Uh, He's lived an independent, um, you know, comfortable, like never wanting for anything life for decades. And his dying wish is that he would be cremated, and then his ashes would be buried in three different locations. Okay? So uh, some will be buried in Atlanta, some will be buried at Arlington National Cemetery, with honors. And some will be buried in humble Rockford, Ohio, just north of here. Why? He's gone. Why does it matter? And yet, some of you, you probably had to make those kind of arrangements and plan ahead. Hopefully, you're thinking these things through. Why do we care? Why does it matter to Uncle Paul? Well, for Jacob, it was a matter of faith. Jacob believes body and soul that God is keeping his promises. And Jacob wants to be buried in the land that has been promised to his family. Are you you close with God in such a way that you can trust him in that same kind of way? Even if I'm long gone and dead, Lord, I trust that you are still keeping your promises. You are still working in my family because you have promised to do that. I pray that we would have that kind of eternal perspective, that kind of kingdom perspective, a sojourner in this land kind of perspective. It will change many things about our lives. We're going to sing a song in just a minute called Take My Life and Let It Be. And so I want to take us back to this idea real quick of the Egyptians selling themselves as slaves. We, we hate to hear that, right? Now, the slavery that they experienced was very different than the slavery that is in the past in our country here. It's more of an indentured servitude. It's a contract that they have willingly entered into, right? And yet they're slaves of Pharaoh. And, and we, we don't want to have anything to do with that. But then when we get to the New Testament, God repeatedly tells us that we, if we're Christians, we are servants, and the word used most of the time is actually Greek word for a, a household slave. We are slaves of God. Not just us regular people, but the superstars of the faith. I want to blast through just a few verses here. Look at the way that these people refer to themselves. Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant, It's the word slave, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He says it again, Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. James, half-brother of Jesus, says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, my half-brother. I am a slave to my half-brother, he says. Second Peter. Simon Peter, a servant, slave, and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, another brother of Jesus, says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And I'm the brother of James. Revelation 1, John, the apostle's writing, says, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants, he's speaking to himself in the third person there, the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, his slave, John. Not only are you a sojourner in this land, not only do you belong in a different land, you belong to We like to live our lives as though we belong to ourselves. The reality is, if you are in Christ, you belong to him. Just like these guys are so conscious of. So I'm going to end with this from Romans 12, which I read a couple weeks ago to you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't Try to be like the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are our king, and you are our master, and yet you're you're our loving father, too. And Lord Jesus, you are our master, and yet you're our our firstborn brother, too. You are our our king and our, our ruler, and yet... You call us brothers and sisters. We, we look at the story of the Egyptians selling themselves, and we think about their desperation and how they willingly make themselves slaves, and yet we don't tend to think of ourselves as slaves or servants of you, our master. And so, Lord, I pray that you would change our mindset, that you would help us to realize that we are sojourners in this land. We don't belong here. We belong in your kingdom. And someday, those of us who are in Christ, you've rescued us. It's already guaranteed, we will be there with you in that kingdom as your beloved children. And we acknowledge, maybe through gritted teeth, that not only do we belong in that other kingdom, but that we belong to you, our king. And so, Lord, help us to be submitted to you. Help us to to honor you and to shape our lives and submit our lives to you as our Lord and King. We want to be independent. We want to be the bosses of our own lives. And Lord, we know that that is not what you have called us to. You have called us to live different from the rest of the world as citizens of your kingdom, children of you, our Lord and Master. In Jesus' name.